a break from Daniel for the past four weeks. And so we're back in it. We've got six to go, and we'll try and do a marathon and run through uh, the rest of Daniel in, a, in around six sessions, session one today. It's, it's complex. It's incredibly complex. Uh, but, but it's truth that God wants us to engage with. God hasn't planted material in his word that he wants us to jump across every time we get to it in our Bible reading series. And please let me encourage you, if you don't do it already, be sure to be reading through the Bible every year and get grips with some of these truths. So we're diving straight into chapter 7. Our heading thus far has been hope and grace in trial. Hope and grace in trial. And our subheading that covers the whole of the chapter this morning is just this one point. Christ reigns supremely and will finally bring an end to all evil. Christ reigns supremely and will finally bring an end to all evil. First one, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dreams. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. So Daniel 7 and onwards, Revelation, almost all of it, uh, is what type of literature? Someone tell me. The genre changes. It's apocalyptic. Thank you. So it's important when we read in the text of scripture that we understand different genres because different genres are read or interpreted differently. Apocalyptic literature, different to historical literature, it comes to us in images and metaphors. Truth is still conveyed. Let's make that, establish it as a fact. Truth is still being conveyed, but it's not being conveyed now necessarily through images or, sorry, through detail that are literal. You know, when we do exegesis, we take words and we dismantle them, we understand what they mean. We're now being given truth through impressions. So the images cannot be broken down into minute details. We're just getting impressions. When, when a gentleman walks into our room, Jerry, for example, stands at the front, you get an impression. We're a lovely fella. He pays me to say that. Okay? We get an impression. We're not looking at what he's wearing. We're not looking at the color, uh, the, the color he's got tucked in or tucked out, or whether or not he's shaved this morning or not. That's too much detail. We're getting impression of what's going on. So, for example, we're going to encounter this morning hybrid beasts, okay? Now, hybrid is quite a popular term these days with vehicles, isn't it? You're getting petrol gas hybrid, is that, is that, is that what they are? Yeah, sorry, sorry, you know, see, see what I know about technology? Okay, nothing. Uh, okay, uh, so we've we got hybrid beasts, but the point here is that the beasts are really not what it's about, and if we get caught up with weird and wonderful beasts, okay, we just do not go anywhere. It's not about beasts. Rather, these beasts are creating impressions. What impressions do you get if you lived in first century in Palestine and you encountered a beast on your walk to school? 
What impression do you get? Fear. Wow, I mean, you should know about that. I mean, you live in the worst country in the world for the worst possible beasts that are dangerous to man all inhabit your sphere. Do you know that? It's true. The most dangerous creatures on earth live in this country. Look, so we know what, what's going on here. So when we encounter these beasts, what we're meant to take away is the impression. And the impression these beasts create is fear. Okay? That's what's going on here, and our trust will help as we look at it. So images create an impression, not detailed exegesis by which we can get details specific details about the future. Moreover, apocalyptic literature has lots of numbers. And look, look, everything, on this is, is a proviso, you are welcome to disagree with everything you hear this morning. But don't come again. <laughs> no, seriously, on apocalyptic literature, there's not agreement. And so you're, you're hearing the way the Lord has revealed this to me. So numbers in apocalyptic literature are not code, in my opinion. So we're not looking for codes, we're not looking for dates, we're not trying to specify particularly when such and such a thing will happen, especially the end. What did Jesus tell us? Nobody will know, so don't even try. Numbers aren't giving us specific details about the future, they too are symbolic. And so for example, we'll come across this phrase, time, times, and half a time, that's one time plus times, plural, two, plus half, 0.5 equals 3.5 years. When you look at 3.5 years, it's also mentioned in 42 months, the exact same time. When you read the book of Revelation, you see this period coming up over and over and over again. And it, you understand from that, this is a period of time. I believe to be from the resurrection of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. It's an imperfect set Time, it's the history of the world from the moment Jesus went up to heaven, it's now. Time, times, and half a times is a period describing where you're sitting right now, looking at me, and I'm looking at you. Hi, Sylvia. <laughs> and so, Revelation, friends, again, the numbers to be understood symbolically rather than codes to be broken to decipher something. And a final point here about how to interpret uh, uh, apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic books is that th there's, lot of, there's a lot of imagery, but we're not left to ourselves to decipher that imagery. Because otherwise we'd all come up with weird and wonderful explanations. As you read apocalyptic literature, you realize the key for interpreting the images is within the books themselves. So to, to interpret Revelation, chapter one and onwards, some of the key to the images are in the early part of Revelation one, if you read it. And the same with chapter seven of Daniel. How do we interpret some of these images in chapter seven? We'll have the next slide, please. It's chapter two. And we'll have the next one, please. And so what you do, when you overlay chapter seven and chapter two, you begin to see some of the code broken down for us. And I'll do that with us this morning so we can see where we're going. And as you do this, friends, so you avoid, and look, if you're into this, please forgive me, so you avoid some of those somewhat strange uh, explanations 
of apocalyptic literature with animals flying around that look bizarre and these dates about when things will happen. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I just don't get any of that stuff. Maybe I'm just weird. I'm from Britain after all, aren't I? You know. So come with me on this journey. Number Verse number one. Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. So it's during his sleep. He gets his vision. It's the reign of Belshazzar. So chapter seven is not chronologically related to chapter five because Belshazzar comes up in chapter five. So we've lost chronology now, okay? Something to understand. Biblical writers do not always keep to chronology. The gospels aren't always chronological. Sometimes they're topical. The material is arranged in topical order rather than chronological order. Daniel is the same. So we're now back to Belshazzar's reign when he was reigning that despot, is 552 BC. And into this situation, we come now. Verse two, the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. The four winds may be a suggestion to the four compass points. So this is something global. And the churning of the sea is usually a picture of chaos. But this churning up is taking place as a consequence of what element? What's an interesting element in the, in the underlying parts of the text there? The four winds of the churning of the sea. What's an interesting word there? The winds and something else. Heaven. So this churning up, this unfolding of history we're about to encounter has a direct relationship to what sphere? Heaven. And who lives there? God. Hold that intention. We're going to come back to that, okay? Verse three, the four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So remember we says we have to look for the clues in interpretation. Chapter seven is to be overlaid over chapter two. So here's two questions. Okay, first one, what object in chapter two has four parts to it? The statue. Yeah, okay? We've got four beasts in chapter seven. In Daniel chapter two, one element with four parts, four distinct parts. What do those four distinctive parts resemble? What impressions were they about? The kingdoms, four empires. So what are the four beasts about? Four kingdoms. And if they're ferocious kingdoms, what does that tell you about them? Yeah, they create fear. So we now have a scene where we've got four beasts which represent, I want to suggest, over later, over chapter two, four kingdoms, beginning with Babylon. So what we're about to get in, in this scenario before us is beginning with Babylon, the future of the world under the reign of four empires. Okay, do you get that? We're going to see the future of the world from Babylon uh, to the end of time under four empires and the whole thing will conclude, we'll see later, with a divine intervention. We're going we're to see history declining. Things, look, we have this crazy notion in our world is that if we get our act together we can make the world a better place you can't you're competing against God here the world is not getting better and better and better 
It's getting worse and worse. We'll see that with the fourth beast. Beast number one. Let's look at the first beast. The first was like a lion. What is he in his fear? He's the king of the jungle, yeah? Okay, the most ferocious of animals. The first was like a lion. It combined, it's a hybrid. So the lion combined with, with the eagle, another dominating creature, is a picture of dominion and strength. It's the kingdom of Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar at the head. And we see that back in chapter two there. It's in chapter two. Uh, there before me was a fourth beast. Terrifying. I've jumped a few pages here. When you, when you have notes, it's quite helpful if you number them. Otherwise you jump pages. There we go. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. So the first beast is the head of the statue. It's Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Beast two. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. Look, this isn't this is Paddington bear. Okay? This is a Syrian brown 250 kilo monster. It's a formidable creature. What did you say? Yeah, not even a koala bear. Except they're not bears, they're koalas, aren't they? Even I know that, right? Okay. So this is a formidable creature like the first. It's the kingdom. What was the second kingdom? The chests and arms, the Medes and the Persians, a combined kingdom. It's the chest and arms of the statue. The third beast is, there's another beast before me, one that looked like a leopard. Slim and tender. These are fie fiercely fast animals. They leap upon their prey when they're unsuspecting, hiding in the lowlands of the grass. They catch their prey and they're formidable killers. Have you ever seen a leopard kill its prey? Formidable experts. How they contain it and hold it and suffocate it and then tear its limbs to pieces. I was looking at you when I said that, Penny. Tear his limbs to pieces. Okay, this is the empire of the Greeks, the Greece. It's belly, this is belly and thighs from Daniel chapter uh, two. And then the fourth beast, this is where we're gonna spend more of our time, okay? There before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. This is the beast of all beasts, okay? If, if one of the other beasts could be likened to a penny, you know, this one can be likened to a Ralph. I mean, you know, you're going from, you know, you know, relatively dangerous creatures to the most menacing. In fact, this beast hasn't got a title, hasn't got a description. It's almost as though there's no beast on earth can sum up quite the ravenous danger and power of this fourth beast. He was terrifying and frightening and very powerful. The ten horns, horns in apocalyptic literature speak of, what does an animal's horn tell you? It's power, power, king's power, okay? And then most, they normally have one, sometimes they have two. This one has got 10. What's that tell you about its power? Multiplied, exponentially. This is the most powerful of all kingdoms. And so friends, Daniel chapter two, this is the legs of iron. Okay, it's feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay from Daniel chapter two. So we have terrifying images of Daniel's creatures that give us glimpses of the present 
and the future. That's what they're doing. That's what these animals are doing. The glimpses begin with the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, move on from the 6th century, and they are the most significant empires of the future of the world. In fact, the Bible is suggesting, and we have to agree, that there is, there's, only, there's only been four empires since the 6th century. Nebuchadnezzar's, then we had the Medes and Persians under Cyrus, then we had Alexander the Great and the Greeks, okay? And then we had the Romans. The Roman Empire lasted from 27 BC to the 15th century AD BC. They reigned for something like 1480 years, the Roman Empire. It's the longest surviving and perhaps the most powerful and terrifying empire in the history of the world. But the thing is, the Roman Empire ended 15th century. So how can this be the final empire? I think what we're meant to understand is that the final beast, hence Pardi White hasn't got a name, a title, the final beast never dies, but rather evolves or morphs into all subsequent empires. So every subsequent empire to the Romans is effectively a continuation of this fourth and final beast of human civilization. So it includes, includes starting with the Roman Empire, it includes Stalin's empire, Hitler's, uh, the, the Ayatollah's, uh, the, the King Jong-yons, the, the Xi Jinping's, and even your ancestry. What was the empire? The Great British Empire. Oh, I know we like to think of it as being such a wonderful empire. It was amongst some of the cruelest the world has ever seen. Well, you guys know that. What did they do to you? Banished you onto the other side of the world. Not you specifically, but some of your neighboring states. Banished you to the other side of the world, never to be seen again. And you know what they do now? They come and visit you. <laughs> and they pay to do it. <laughs> and you even employ some of them. <laughs> yes, okay. So this fourth beast is one that morphs into all the subsequent empires of the world. Notice that the, that the fourth beast has within it an element whose specific purpose is to destroy the church, or rather, destroy the people of God. Listen to this, verse eight. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, so within this fourth beast, a little horn came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted, so it's in, in, in search of power, it has no regard for anyone. This horn had eyes like of a man, and mouth that spoke boastfully, and verse 21, as I watched, this horn was waging war with who? Saints, who, who? Do we have any saints here this morning? I'm looking at him. I'm looking at him. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. You are saints of the Most High God. This one, within the fourth kingdom, there arises an element who is bent on destroying God's people. 
We saw it first of all, most powerfully, when Jesus was born. What did they try and do to him? Rome, right from his birth. They tried to stamp him out. And failing to stamp out Jesus, what did they try and do to his church for 300 years? Throwing them to lions and animals and gladiators. They tried to destroy us. The more they beat us, the stronger we grew. And they say, and there's a book about it, Fox's Book of Martyrs, that the blood of the, or the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. We grew, we grew. But nevertheless, there's been within this fourth kingdom, and it's been continuing throughout history, this element that has been bent on destroying God's people. It's still a work today. I know it's still a work today. I had a bunch of emails from a young lady, your wife, Graham. Just giving me some of this information about organizations working in Austra- Australia to curtail what? Have a guess. To curtail the government and its power over the church. The Aussie government, and they're probably listening to this, I better watch what I say, I could be deported. The Aussie government, amongst other Western governments, in legislations they are passing, are doing what to Jesus' church? Yeah. Every Western government, they're doing it back in Britain, it's where I left. Only to find the same here. And we're now, our movements, I don't know how far it's gone in Australia, but in Britain, our movements are increasingly being curtailed. We, we're not free now to stand outside and say what sin looks like. For fear we may be jailed if we say sin is sin. There's law that's in action at the moment in Great Britain, whereby one day, if I was still there, I would be, f- I would be forced to marry certain genders in our community and if I refuse to do so I could be in prison in fact some western countries men or women have gone to prison for refusing to marry particular genders and so friends this fourth beast isn't all ancient and historical it didn't always come with an iron fist it's just as powerful using diplomacy democratic elections to bring across a more subtle, perhaps more dangerous form of persecution against this church. So the picture that Daniel paints for us, friends, on first reading is bleak. It speaks of a future of the world from the sixth century onwards where empire after empire rules in savagery. It's a dog-eat-dog world, a picture of humanity suffering. It's a picture of God's people being attacked. But, but, amidst the bleakness and despair and darkness, I want to suggest Daniel chapter 7 is amazingly mingled with a picture A picture of God's grace. That's why our heading's been hoping grace. It's a picture where, where God limits suffering. It's a picture where God manages evil. It's a picture of heaven 
come down. It's a picture of an ultimate, wonderful empire, kingdom reigning. Daniel chapter 7 paints the bleakest of pictures, the darkest of scenes, and then casts onto that canvas, the blacker than black canvas, shiny, glittering diamonds of hope, grace, management, and the prevailing of a brand new kingdom. Not described as a beast, but we'll see a completely different image for that kingdom. So let me show you how how Daniel 7 speaks of encouragement to God's church. Firstly, A, we see in Daniel 7 that evil is managed by God. If you ever worked in a firm, there's nothing worse than when the manager goes away. It's chaos. I remember that it was where I used to work. I started work in, in, for a chemical firm, and I don't know, I don't know what possessed me. We were lo- we were setting off uh, fire extinguishers all over our building just for fun, and then the manager walks in. Put, what did we do? What did we do when the manager came in? We put everything down, and he was daft enough to believe there was some kind of leak on the ceiling with all this water. I hope he's not listening to this. But with all this water dripping off the ceiling, look. God manages evil, which means evil takes on a brand new light when we know it's been managed. Let me show you. Beast one. Notice this about the beast. Beast one. And the heart of a man was what? Given it. Beast two, the Medes and Persians. It was T O L D? told to get up. It was told. Can you see what's been happening? It's been managed. B3, the Greeks, it was G-I-V-E-N? Given. What do all these terms tell you about the activity of these ferocious beasts? Permission. Under management. Under oversight. Under control. Okay, the world and its empires of evil haven't just been going on with God sitting there twiddling his thumbs. What can I do about all this? I'm out of control. My world is out of control. No, that is not your God, Christian. He sits on high. He reigns on high. And he manages the world. Here's what Steve Wilmshurst An author, Christian author, writes, ultimately, above and beyond what even Satan can do, it is God who puts these rulers in place. God who controls and limits what they do. So friends, God is managing the world, even with the chaos. It doesn't mean he's complicit in the evil. He's not the agent of evil. That's the empires. That's the people within it. But nevertheless, God manages it. He he allows, he permits, he sanctions, he oversees. He's always one step ahead of Nebuchadnezzar uh, and Cyrus uh, and Alexander uh, and those multiple Roman empires and the governments of the Western world. 
And let me declare this. If, this is, if anyone of any importance is listening to this, God is one step ahead of every political force in this world. God. Amen. Psalm 115. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Where is he? Our God is in heaven. And he does whatever he pleases. No one dictates to him. The dictates come from him. Psalm 135. I know that the Lord is great. That our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him. In what realms? In what realms is he reigning, doing whatever pleases him? What other realms? Heaven? Yeah, yeah we, we can accept heaven. You, go to your, you can do whatever you want up there. But where else? On earth. On earth. In every corner of this world. He reigns. Our Lord does whatever pleases him. So, so friends, just as terrifying as these empires are, and they are terrifying... God reigns supremely over them. They do not lift a finger without his full knowledge and oversight and management. And so we take courage, friends. Our God is in charge. Our God is in charge. That means he's in charge not just of the great political powers and the evil behind them, it means it's in charge of the evil that is active in your life and in my life. It means he's in charge. He's in charge in this community. Who governs and manages and oversees the activity of this unit of God's kingdom? The Lord, the Lord. Whatever else may seem to be the reality, Jesus governs his church. Secondly, evil is restricted to a specified time. Evil is restricted to a specified time. Friends, the greatest hope and solace in suffering is knowing that there's a limit and a time set on that suffering. Is it not true that whatever we're facing, if God would tell us, look, you've got it for X number of days and then he finishes, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything. And on this evil reign, the reign of evil regimes and even good regimes who do evil, there is a set time. Listen to this, verse 24, the 10 horns and, and the 10 kings all came up from this kingdom and the verse 25 I'll just jump to that verse 25. The saints will be handed over to him for how long? And it doesn't really matter how long, but they'll be handed over to him with what in mind? Time that is set beforehand. That's the point of encouragement that the whole thing is controlled. It's thus far for this long up until this time and then no. No more. The end. The whole thing is controlled. The saints will be handed over to him for the time, times and half the time. That's 3.5 years. That's the time of Jesus' first coming and Jesus' 
second coming, the point being that the set time when our suffering under these regimes will finally come to an end is at what point in history? When does the three and a half years end? It ends on Jesus' return. And that's the point here, that this is a period that has been overseeing, controlled. And let me ask you, does God know when that's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Has he set the date in his diary? Yeah. Is he working towards that date? Yeah. And then evil will end. It's being contained. Evil is restricted to a specified time. And the final one, the final one, evil is permanently overthrown and Christ's eternal kingdom established. Daniel's dream now changes. This is the best part of my sermon, but I've got the least amount of time to preach it. So I'm going to get faster and faster, okay? So listen quicker and quicker. Okay, Daniel's dream changes now to a scene in heaven. I, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancients of days took his seat. Who is this referring to? God. Someone who's been there from ancient of times. The oldest being in the universe, if you like. He's there and he's a warrior. Look how he's, look how what an awesome being he is. Flames of fire blazing around him. So I want you to notice, in contrast to the, uh, the, the, the animals and the chaos, we now have a new scene going from chaos to peace. There's a reign. There's a throne. There's one on it. And listen, look what he's doing there. The court was seated and books were open. What's taking place here? Judgment. Thank you. Judgment. And the verdict to be issued is, verse 11, I continue to watch, and I kept looking until the beast was slain, the fourth beast, and his body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. What is God doing there? What's taking place? Destroying all evil. This is the end of time as we know it. God has got his book open. He's doing final judgment. And as his judgment is enacted, so it's felt. Where in Revelation 20, we see a better picture of this, a more graphical picture, Revelation 20, verse 10. It's the same as verse 11 of Daniel 7. Listen to this. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the four pro- false prophets, all the people who support him, were thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever. Here's the message to anyone who opposes Jesus Christ and his church. Your day and your hour is coming. The hour for your judgment by the God who you defy and the hour of your punishment by the God whose church you have dared assault. It is no small matter to take on God and his bride. What did Jesus do for this bride? What will he do to defend this bride? He will put his life on the line for her. And the time is coming when all, from empires to nations to individuals and organizations who oppose the people of God will be judged and condemned to an eternity of suffering. Friends, God is bringing an end to all evil permanently 
And with doing that, he establishes in its place a new. When God destroys all of the past, he establishes a new future, a new planet, a new earth, a new heaven and earth. Revelation 21 tells us where there's no longer any sea, the picture of sea. Look, if you love surfing, don't worry about heaven not having any sea. It doesn't really mean there's going to be no sea. Remember this picture? It's creating impressions. It means there's going to be no more chaos. Nothing evil arising. Nothing being churned up. There'll be waves of surfing, but no waves to churn up fear. Evil is permanently overthrown. And the finale now, the finale, the last thing I want to say to you, the finale of all history is what every Christian is anticipating, longing for, looking for. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. As you saw him go, so you'll see him return. Here's one who approaches the ancient of days. He comes in verse 14. In his dominion is an everlasting dominion, will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is Jesus coming again, establishing his kingdom. Remember what he said when they put him on trial before the Pharisees? He stood there and says, are you the son of God? Tell us. And what did he say? Yes, and you will see what? Does anyone remember it? Mark 14. There it is. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. It's a quote from Daniel 7. And coming on the clouds of heaven, Jesus, before they were about to send him away, tells them, oh, you may be sending me out of the sphere of visibility and touch, but I'm telling you, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And when I return, what does Philippians 2 tell us? Every eye will see him and every knee. That Sanhedrin that tried and convicted and condemned the Lord of life will both see his return and bow before him in adoration. And every eye and every empire, and every government, and every organization, and every individual. It relates back to Daniel 2. It's the final kingdom, the rock that's cut out, uh, out, of, the, out of the rock without hands and smashes every other uh, kingdom into place. Jesus, on his arrival to the planet, will decimate all evil and establish an empire, a kingdom that will continue forever and ever, where righteousness and peace and love and justice will reign forever. Evil is permanently overthrown and Christ's eternal kingdom established. The future, what do you think this was telling the first readers, the exiles returning back after suffering persecution? What do you think he was telling them? What was the point of it? Hope. Hope. That there's a future that's bright. And Christian tells us the same thing. Our future is bright. Our future, here is what it is. Our future is one where the evil is destroyed, where Christ reigns, and where we live paradise planet wow wow 
and grace in trial. Amen. Thank you. I wonder if the musicians will join us.